but look at a business that's like a $200,000 business, a $300,000 business. A $300,000 business might have $150,000 in cash flow, plus the fact that he's a genius and he was able to play a really hard game. If you're constantly looking for how sexy something is, or you're constantly looking to justify your decision versus poke at your thesis, that's someone I would never trust with my money. So what would I avoid doing? What would I not do? They know they're probably not a crook. You know, they're, they're probably not going to steal their money from them. We're, we're wired to see patterns. We're wired for predictability. So when something feels uncertain and unpredictable, it creates a level of anxiety for people. Welcome to the Leverage Podcast, where we give you men's dating advice that doesn't suck. I'm your host, Robbie Kramer, a personal growth junkie and dating coach for over 15 years. Tune in each week to learn the latest and greatest strategies to get more dates, make yourself more attractive and confident with the opposite sex in order to meet your perfect 10 and design a lifestyle that makes all your buddies jealous. If you're a regular listener and digging our content, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, wherever you watch this or listen. But if you don't feel like it's worthy of five stars, um, just go ahead. Don't leave any review at all. And that'd be great. Uh, If you're new to the show, I recommend you download my free dating protocol, which will help you optimize your first dates. I like to connect with my listeners personally. So send me a message on Instagram, say hi, and I'll send you over that PDF to download. You can find me on Instagram at Robbie underscore Kramer. That's R-O-B-B-I-E underscore K-R-A-M-E-R. So before we dive into this week's content, I want to let you guys know we've opened up a few slots in our exclusive mastermind program called the Leverage Program. We're accepting applications. If you want to join our select group of men and experience the radical power of accountability, stop procrastinating on your goals, cross everything off your sexual bucket list, become a beast who gets more stuff done. To learn more and apply, go to innerconfidence.com slash leverage. And we're back. We are with Eric Schlein, the portfolio manager of Granite State Capital Management. Eric's been uh, in the game for a while. Also, I've known him for a long time. Um, and he's always talking about very interesting sort of investment strategies and mindsets. So I'm super, super stoked to have him on to share his wisdom with us today. Eric, thanks for coming. Thanks uh, for having me on. So tell us, how did you get into your line of work? Well, I um, it's been a while. I st- it started actually. I was with my mom at a bookstore. So back when I was a a kid, <clears throat> the one thing my parents would buy for me pretty much if I wanted was books. That w- that were very supportive of me um, being ed- as educated as possible. Um, <clears throat> and so I was in a bookstore. I was about fourteen years old. And I decided I want to go be a big boy, go to uh, the most mature section I could find, which was the business section. And I found a book by um, The Motley Fool, and it was a, a, like a teen's guide to making more money than your parents ever dreamed of. And, uh, you know, that, that for me was very enticing as a teenager. So picked it up, started reading it at the bookstore, and, you know, talked a lot about, like, uh, you know, a lot of personal finance concepts, like, you know, don't go into you know, too much debt, you know, don't spend everything on a credit card and, uh, you know, don't, don't, uh, spend more than you earn. But then they showed a compound interest graph. You know, if you, you know, have a hundred thousand dollars or you have $10,000 and you compound it for 50 years at 10%, it's a lot of money. And 
my first thought, and this is verbatim, the, the thought that I had was I could be a loser and work at McDonald's my entire life and, and still be, you know, a millionaire. Um, <laughs> and the insight that I had is I had to, I had to be able to be consistent long term because if you do the math, if you have permanent losses of capital, of, you know, say three or four times at fifty percent, it really destroys performance over a five decade period. So, what would that be? Where you're uh, not contributing to your like? Well, it would it would be <clears throat> so you know. Let's say um, you know, and, and again, the, the the reality never looks like the the perfect math because if you do 10 percent annualized over 50 years there's probably going to be very few years where you've actually done 10 percent right so it's a lot lumpier than that but just to make things simple you know if you had 50 years of returns of 10 percent um versus 47 years of 10 percent and then three random years where you you've lost 50 percent uh the difference in that number is, is gigantic um i don't remember it off the top of my head but it, it's 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 a it's a lot it's a lot um so having the um having the insight that i had to be able to do this long term and i had to figure out a way to not lose a lot of money um over the long term and and, and, it, and that very much resonates with you know what warren buffett says right which is rule number one don't lose money rule number two don't forget rule number one so i I decided to start reading about the investors in the book. And the first person I read about was a guy named William O'Neill. Um, he is the founder of the Investor Business Daily. And um, it was a, clearly a smart guy, but I, I just there's so many, there was so many charts and, and it was so fancy. And I just remember thinking there's no way I could do this over a long period of time. This is so intricate and so complicated. Um then the next person I read about was Peter Lynch, who's a genius. Um, and I came away, I mean, I think the biggest thing I got from reading his stuff, uh, and he's a great writer too, I, I highly recommend his books for new investors, was really being able to see the stock market is a supermarket of businesses, not just, you know, a bunch of, you know, tickers going up and down. These, these represent real assets, real liabilities, real cash flows. Um, I also came away with the, the I came away with the takeaway that I didn't think I could replicate his career. I didn't think, um, you know, the market did very well during during the time period he was investing with Magellan, um, and he also he would own like a thousand stocks at a time sometimes, which is I think the only person I can think of who's actually done really well owning that many stocks. Um, was he just like a beast who spent all of his time researching these companies? Yeah, he'd research. He'd he'd fly around the country visiting these businesses. Um, he also discovered some pretty big companies when they were tiny. So there there was a lot of things he did right, where if he didn't do those things, you wouldn't have had those returns, right? So if the, you know, if he hadn't discovered some of these small companies, if he hadn't been traveling all over the world, or if he was in a different time period where the market wasn't as good, um, surely his track record wouldn't have been as good. So there was a lot of things going for him, plus the fact that he's a genius and he was able to play a really hard game. I think what he was doing was very hard um, and make a lot of money. So I just didn't think I was as I, I I didn't think I would be as good at that game as, and I still don't think I'd be good at at that game than he is. So 
And he probably had a team of people helping him as well, right? I don't know, actually. Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't I don't know how many people were actually helping him with that. Okay. Is that um, common for for you know people, I guess, portfolio managers or to to have like a big squad of people that are helping with the research, or they're more like a one man show? It's so a little bit of both. Um, it depends on the shop. I, most of the investors who are pretty famous, who have the very long term track records, like Buffett, for example. They, they, yeah, so like Buffett, for example. Um, you know, he does have two portfolio managers now, but they were really brought in to you know take over when when him and Munger died. Um, but before um, uh, Todd Combs and Ted Weschler were at Berkshire, um, which that's an amazing story of how they how they ended up joining. But the um, I think he had like um, Britt Tracy Cool was like an analyst there. So I think he had like I think he had like one analyst at, at Berkshire, um, okay. so you know, a- managing a multi billion dollar portfolio. Um, the there's a guy named Seth Klarman. I know he does have a team of people that he works with, but generally these these people do all their own thinking, most of their own research, and the analyst is there to say, hey, can you go to this company or hey, can you look for, you know, just look through some filings for me. Um, so it, it, it's more of taking away some of the grunt work. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally when you have like investment committees, so to answer your question, a team of people or investment committees are actually much more common than an individual. But the investment committees are generally more of like the large uh corporate types of businesses or even some large hedge funds. Um, but the the people that end up having the superior track records, very few of them have investment committees. Mm, um, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, part of that too is, um, you know, like if, if I had hired, if I hired an analyst, for example, not to do grunt work for me, but to actually generate ideas for me, it it would be kind of a weird dynamic because it's very likely that I could just say no to the guy or the gal for like three years straight. And, you know, <laughs> they just give me ideas and I just keep saying no to them. And, and it's not even, it wouldn't even be a reflection that the idea is bad. Right. But if someone is such a, if someone is so good at research, they're actually better off. You're better off just giving them capital and let them do their thing and not talk to you. Interesting. Cause, cause I, that's yeah. my view anyway. Cause my view is if I hired somebody, they're gonna have a they're gonna have a different um competency set, you know, understanding of the world than I do. So, you know, one of my competitive advantages is I can see things and opportunities that other people can't see. Well, if they're that smart, they're gonna see things that I can't see. Right. So some it's likely that some of their best ideas I would disagree with or I would not be comfortable investing in, which is why it's a good idea. Right. How did you develop that intuition or that ability? I don't know. Skill, I guess um, is a better way to, to say it. I, I, I don't know. See, I don't know how much of it I was like born with and how much of it was learned. Um, I've always been someone who... I, so I think that the, the natural tendencies that I have have very much worked for me where um, I've always been interested in understanding how things work on, you know, being a truth seeker. I 
kind of hate that word. I cringe even when I say it, but um, trying to really understand like how to be as objective as possible and, you know, in, in, in reality. Um, so I've never had the kind of resistance to challenging my beliefs as most people do. That is a huge advantage psychologically. Um, you know, if you buy a stock and then you talk you all your kind of take your ego out of the equation pretty easily. Very, very much so. Yeah. And a lot of people will buy a stock, talk to everybody about it, and they're looking for confirmation on why they're right. right. I'm actually trying to look to see where I'm wrong. Um, and then the, I think the other thing though, is that being in sort of an environment of other investors doing fundamental analysis, I'm around other people that have that kind of mindset and I'm kind of turned off by people that are more promotional or, you know, talking about like, Oh, I like this piece of real estate or I like this, I like Tesla, you know, and again, regardless if it's a good investment or not, there's a certain kind of mindset where if you're constantly looking for how sexy something is, or you're constantly looking to justify your decision versus poke at your thesis. I mean, that's someone I would never trust with my money. Um, so I, I, and then also, you know, and the other thing too, is it makes you more money if you can see where you're wrong, because it makes your thesis stronger. Right. Um, so I think part of it was innate. And then part of it has just become habitual with the environment that I'm around. Gotcha. So circling back to kind of your beginning story how did you tell us about like your first deal how did you generate enough capital to start um you know your company um so to start my company or just to make my first investment so that's a different um thing whichever one you think is more yeah so the you know when i started investing um you know it was a little money that i had saved up um, my, my first investment was like, you know, a $1,000 investment in Apple, you know, and I thought it was a genius when it doubled and you know, that, that it'd be, I sold it at, for about, uh, so I got about $2,000 for my Apple shares that would be worth, you know, like over 300 K today. Um, but then the way that I raised capital to start my company <clears throat> is I had been doing this, you know, for, you know, I made my first investment in Apple and it's 17 years old. Um, it was actually in my dad's brokerage account because I wasn't even old enough to open my own account yet. Um, I remember my 18th birthday, the day after my 18th birthday, I, I opened up an account with uh, TD Ameritrade. Um, so, my, you know, I, I've been doing this literally since before I could legally own my own account. And um, I had my very first investor who I... No, I can't, you know, for privacy reasons, I can't say who it is, but they're, um, they do like angel investing and, and stuff like that. So not your typical, not the typical person I would think would invest with me. And I had actually had an idea for a business. Um, and he, and I had knew, I had known him. Um, I really respect the guy. The guy's brilliant and he's invented some cool stuff. Um, MIT graduate, um, him and his wife, both are actually MIT graduates, but the, um, I, I was sitting down with him at this restaurant that he owned and I was pitching him this business idea that I had and he, he hated the idea. Um, but he said, you know, that uh, investing stuff that you do and you kind of want to start, maybe we should sit down and talk about that. And uh, I was like, great. So a few weeks later I was supposed to meet with him and I, and I had almost forgotten about the meeting. It was just like, 
because it was really early. I'm not a morning person. I've never been a morning person. And on an hour of sleep, I rush over back to the location and I was wearing, it was the most ridiculous outfit. I was wearing like a, like those tight under armor, like workout clothes mm-hmm. and I hadn't showered, but I didn't want to be late for the meeting. So I was on an hour of sleep, probably smelled terrible wearing, <laughs> wearing like spandex workout clothes. And I showed up and, and, you know, we discussed more about my investment strategy and what I do. And he said, I'd like to give you a hundred thousand dollars. And I said, great. And then a couple of weeks later, he said, I actually like to give you $200,000. And I said, okay, great. And that was, he was my first investor. Wow. Um, and that made it a bit easier to raise more money because, you know, someone else right. had already, had already taken the plunge. It's always the first person is always the hardest. Um, and then it was just like talking to people and, you know, people generally know this is what I do and this is what I'm passionate about. And I think it kind of self-selects like my marketing strategy literally is just have conversations with people like I would anyway. Mm-hmm. And I've ended up, I'm really fortunate, but I've, I've ended up attracting the right kind of people um, who tend to be more business minded, business savvy, long term thinking. Um, a lot of my investors are actually pretty good investors themselves and they could technically do this themselves. They just don't want to. Um, is that so because it's, they're, they're busy running their own businesses or, yeah, or, the, or it's just, you know, they don't, this is not their thing, right. you know? Um, but so I, you I, have I, this passion for analyzing companies, looking yeah. at deals. That's like, you wake up and you're excited to do that. So. That's, that's right. I, I mean, I was at, uh, one of my investors, I was at his house a few years ago and I was sharing with him an analysis of this business I was really excited about. I had not had an idea this good in years. And this is like four or five years ago now. Um, and I'm just sitting down with him on the analysis. And after we get through it, he goes, you know, you don't ever have to do that with me again. That like. I'm bored to tears, but I'm so glad this turns you on. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, it, but I love that because I, <laughs> that's right. That's, that's right. That's right. So it was nice. And it also gave me the comfort that I don't need to, you know, analyze every single investment before I um, buy it for my investors that, you know, they trust me that, I'm doing the work, gotcha. you know, my, myself. And, and if I'm, and if I screw up, which I do on occasion, um, when I say on I, a lot, actually, um, you know, I'm very upfront with my investors. Like, Hey, I made a mistake here. I screwed up here. And then I actually speak about that first. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I, how I've been, how I've raised money over time. When you're looking at potential deals, yeah. Do you have like a sector that you look in first or are you kind of just open no. to, to anything, any size company, any like exit strategy? Yeah. Um, so I'm a generalist, meaning that I'll look at anything. Um, and, you know, and, and this is me personally. Everyone's going to be different, right? Like, you know, you look at a guy like John Malone who runs Liberty Media, right? He, the only thing he's invested in since the 1970s are um like cable companies and media companies you know there's a great book called cable cowboy about him and you know he started with tci in the 70s and um right on the verge of bankruptcy the guy's done like 40 percent annualized since the 70s it's like one of the best investment track records in the world guy's a billionaire and he's only invested in one sector you know Mm -hmm. me and media and cable 
Um, and then there's people like me where I will look at pretty much anything that I can wrap my head around. So I guess you could say if something's over the top complicated, I'm just not going to waste my time with it because it, it's, or I'm not going to look at like speculative stuff. Um, so, you know, if there's like a, a pharmaceutical company that has one drug and a trial run, I'm not going to buy something with the hopes that it's going to be successful. Um, I don't really buy IPOs. Um, so I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing, I guess I'm not doing that, but anything else is, is, is pretty much fair game. I prefer the United States, but I will look outside the United States if something is a really good bargain. Um, I prefer large stable companies, but I often invest in very, very tiny companies because there's better um, opportunity sets available uh, with those businesses. You know, I mean, I like the sweet spot would be I can buy Coca-Cola at four times earnings, but that's never going to happen. So um, like I got I got to roll with what's available to me. Right. And are you looking where where are you finding deals? Are these just like word of mouth sort of things here? Stuff you hear from from your contacts? Are you like doing research online a lot of the time? Yeah. So so my my first thing, which your listeners probably won't like. So, you know, Buffett has said, you know, one of his keys to his success is he reads five. He tries to read 500 pages a week on anything. So I've been doing that, you know, for for years. I, I mm-hmm. not every week I do that, but um, most weeks I'd say I'm I'm pretty around there. Um, I read most of my job is reading and mm-hmm. learning. Um, so sitting on your ass and reading is 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 a competitive advantage because most people aren't doing that. You know, actually going through an annual report. It's amazing how many people invest in have never read a corporate report or they or they read the, the sales presentation and that's it. Like actually get get your get your you know your your hands dirty and start reading corporate reports, especially with the smaller companies where no one's looking at that stuff. Um, and then, and just to clarify, the, corporate report would be all of the financials, right? Yeah, like the quarterly reports, the annual reports. Reading so you kind of have to know what you're looking for, at least a basic level. No, I I don't know what I'm looking for. Like I'm I'm reading things that interest me or that I find interesting. Meaning, and, like, you need to know what a balance sheet looks like and how. Oh to well, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, if yeah. you don't understand basic accounting, you're not going to be able to. You need you need to have a basic understanding of the influence of the language of business. Um, you don't need, like but, you don't, of... but you don't need to be an accountant. You know, that's, that's right. I think that's the other thing. Is like, it's not that hard to read a balance sheet when you learn that. It's not that hard to read a cash flow statement. If it is hard, that might be a red flag that there's something going on. You know, I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell you, strategy. I'll tell you a story. Yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you a story. I used, so when I was in high school, I, I kept an investment journal um, that I actually found recently and I was talking in 2005. So I think 2005, either 05 or 0, yeah, it would have been 05. It was 2005 and I'm writing about looking at Fannie Mae the the company and how I'm re- trying to read the annual report. There's arrows going all over the place and the business makes no sense to me. Like, And then I look at the bonds and they're rated triple A and I don't understand how these are rated triple A. Like the whole thing. So it's it just, it was like interesting, right? Because all of this stuff crashes, you know, a few years later and the whole thing that, you know, Moody's was, was misgrading these bonds and, you know, Fannie Mae obviously be, became a horrible disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a high school student, I, you didn't have to be a genius to figure out they're intentionally trying to make this confusing for you. 
Right. So some of the best businesses you'll see, it's a very simple, you know, very simple numbers. And so simpler, the better generally. Um, but yeah, if you, if you under, if you can understand basic accounting and how to read books, uh, reading you know, financials, um, then it's just reading and figuring out what you're comfortable with and, and what you're good at and maybe what you're not good at. Um, so I always tell people start with companies that interest you. You know, I, I, when I was in high school, I, I, um, there was a book called Warren Buffett wealth. Um, that was actually the book, the first book about Buffett I read. So when I was saying I read, you know, William O'Neill, Peter Lynch, the third book was, was Warren Buffett wealth. And that was where the light bulb for me really clicked. And at the back of that book, I just wrote down a bunch of companies that were interesting to me. You know, it was like Amazon and eBay and Nike and Coca-Cola, you know, a bunch of these Caterpillar. Um, and you'll start to figure out like what is interesting to you, what makes sense to you, what you can understand. And then you just keep reading and go down rabbit holes. Gotcha. Yeah. So most of the guys listening to this podcast are... Um, guys who've done really well in their careers, and they're looking to to do really well in their dating life. They're doing good with their dating life. They're looking to do really well. Um, yeah. So doctors, lawyers, executives, those, those sorts of types. Um, what is your advice for for sort of that archetype of guy? If he's he's making pretty good money, yeah. um, wants to invest some of it, isn't really a hands on or or uh, you know you know, doesn't really know a lot about investing, you could say. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you the first thing, which is um, what not to do. I always like to start with mm-hmm. inverting inverting the question, right? It's like, you know, if you want to, you know, Char- Charlie Munger always says, if you want to be happy, figure out what makes you unhappy. Um, you know, he'll say, you know, I, um, you know, he goes, he always goes, I want to know, he goes, I wish I knew where I would die. So I never go there. Um, That's funny. Yeah. So inversions or invert using inversion as a principle to solve problems is, is, is great. So what would I avoid doing? What would I not do? Um, not listen to most of your friends in that kind of circle. I, Cause I find a lot of those sort of high level people made in their career, you know, that sort of archetype. Oh, well, there's exceptions, obviously they tend to be friends with lots of entrepreneurs, lots of high tech people. And they tend to be interested in kind of very sexy stories. Mm. So, you know, out here in, you know, I'm, in, I'm, I'm about a half hour North of Austin. There's a lot of people who, you know, have invested in Austin real estate because Austin real estate has done very, very well um, over the last 10 years. And, the problem with Austin real estate now, it still may be a good investment going forward, but the, the prices, so what there's a the calculation called cap rate, which is the income the property will make divided by the purchase price. The cap rates have come down so much um, that you really need um, really, really high price appreciation in that house to, to make money. So I would put that in the speculative category um, and the problem with that is that, you know, you could say everyone knows Austin pop, the Austin population will continue to grow that, that, but that's not, that's a no brainer. Everyone knows that. So the price is already reflecting when everyone knows. So it doesn't inherently mean it's a good investment. <clears throat> so people who are attracted to very sexy growth stories 
tend to do worse than you know if you just put your money in an index fund. You know, even if you look at people who are doing like high level like venture capitalism and and private equity, private equity has underperformed um, the index over over many many decades by like two or three percent. Right. Um, and they're doing all this work and crazy. And you could have just gone to sleep for fifty years and, and had a better return. <laughs> Um, how does it stay? How does it stay to like a thing? Given all that, well, it stays a thing because people, no one see no no one really thinks they're average. You know, it's like if you if you ask a group of people in a room if they think they're a better than average driver, like ninety percent of the people raise their hand, right? Um, which of course is impossible. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. You know, I think most people are under the delusion that, you know, there if you say you're new in private equity or venture capital, well, I'll be able to figure out who's gonna, you know, make it or who what businesses will make it. I have an edge. Most of them time they don't have an edge. Yeah. Um, most of the time and you could have a monkey shooting darts at random venture capital companies and it would do just as well. <laughs> um so I think that you know, the, the general rule of thumb is that high growth businesses tend to be worse investments over time because every because you're you're paying too much of a price for those businesses. So if you're attracted to sexy stories and sexy sexy companies, you're very likely to do worse than average, and it sticks around because people only talk about their good investments. You know. Look, people talk about, about winning the yeah. Look, people talk about winning the lottery, right? I mean, you can read newspaper articles. It doesn't mean that that playing the lottery is a good choice. It's a very bad choice. Yeah. But but you don't hear about the millions and millions of people who lost the dollar. You hear about the people that won Powerball. Um, so same thing with investing. Like you don't he, people tend to not talk about the times when they lose money. They only talk about their winner. So it it. Makes you know if you look out there, it's kind of like Instagram, right? You have a bunch of Instagram models and people doing kind of. It's like, oh my god, everyone has an amazing life other than me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hello, they have filters and that's not their life. Right. Um, same thing with investing. It looks like everyone's doing all these interesting, sexy things, and then there's the whole FOMO that comes into play, the fear of missing out. So you pay higher and higher prices, and this is why these these sexy growth companies. You oft, it's often this game of hot potato. You know, can I buy it and sell it to someone else at a higher price? Eventually, the party's over. Right. And when the party's over, it's very painful. Um, you know, you can be see like that the crypto with... run up in the end of 2017. Yeah. 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 And, and again, I have no idea if, crypt, if certain you know crypto coins end up being a good investment or not. But when everyone is in some idea, that tends to be a bad sign. Um, you don't want competition. So ideally, if you want to make money, go to places where there's less competition. Go to places where, where you actually have an edge. Um, and you know, places where people would have an edge is typically, typically, not always, but typically with smaller businesses that people are are, are not looking at as much. Um, when the, the the less liquidity in the businesses, the better, because people will pay up for liquidity. And if you don't need to sell next year, who the hell cares if you have liquidity? Um, so, so there's like thinly traded stocks. Um, they can often do, you'll find better opportunities there. And even if you go on to like a biz buy a sell website, you know, and looking at private companies, um, you know, there's some businesses that you can buy for like three or four times earnings. You might have to put 10 hours of work a week, a week into them, but you can get some great valuations if you want to put in some work. If you don't want to do any work, then I'd say stick to the stock market. Um, 
So this is probably a dumb question, but can you explain yeah. that liquidity thing? Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, sure. So if math. you if you were to go on to here, I'm gonna just pull up. Um, you said finance. having less liquidity is better. Not well, not inherently, but you're you're more likely to find more opportunities. So like right now, I'm looking up Coca Cola today. Okay. Right, and the oh no, okay. It's an ad playing. So right now, the volume today is six point nine million shares have traded. Um, so you know to to put that in perspective, six point nine million times sixty. Um, just do some math real quick. So that's like $414 million of that has traded today. That's, that's, that's a lot of liquidity. It's a very liquid asset. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you could literally have purchased $50 million of Coca-Cola stock today and would have had many shares left over. Gotcha. Now, there's another company. So my largest holding, which I'm, I'm not going to publicly say on the air, but if I was to look at the liquidity of... It's either my largest or second largest holding, depending on the account that I manage. But... Um, so the there's a company that is one of the largest holdings. Um, it trades a little under ten dollars a share, and there's two hundred and sixty two shares that have traded today. So it's to give you the exact math on that, um, two thousand five hundred fifty four dollars and fifty cents of stock has traded today. Very that's well. not that's yeah. nothing. Right? If you had a hundred thousand dollars, you couldn't even put that in to the stock today. Right. Um, and there's companies where zero shares trade and sometimes they, they only, is that a publicly just... traded company? Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've seen public, I've invested in publicly traded companies before that trade like three or four times a year. Hmm. Now, that, that, that's rare, but, um, I've seen that too. So, you know, we're used to looking at like Google's and Coca-Cola's and, you know, is the, that the just big... because no one really knows about them. So they don't really do a well, lot of trading. Less people know about them. You know, analysts typically aren't following them. But they're also smaller, so there's less there's less of the there's less money available to to trade. You know, you, right. if you had a thirty million dollar publicly traded company, it would be mathematically impossible. Well, not mathematically impossible, but for for sixty million dollars of shares to trade a day, that means all that means a hundred percent of the company would have to exchange hands twice in one day. <laughs> so yeah, you're dealing with changing of CEOs and boards and everything with that. It would be ridiculous. Yeah, it'd be ridiculous. So. Um, and now again, that doesn't inherently mean that that's a good investment. Um, but I like to look at pockets of the market where I feel I will have an edge. So that being said, I do own some shares of Google. Right? Google's a large company and they are very, very highly liquid. I just happen to think when I do evaluation of them that they're, that they're a good investment today. Um, but most of my time is not spent looking at those businesses. I, I'm spending much. I'm spending probably ninety five percent of my time looking at very small things because it, it takes more work to search for that, and there's more manual work that you have to do um, with that too. You know, Google does not have a hidden asset anywhere, right. but you know, some of these other businesses they might have a piece of real estate that's that's misunderstood or a, a new product coming out to market, and there's you know, just less. Bless you. There's, there's just less understood about it. Um, and there's not news. There's not going to be many news articles on it as well. Um, the other part, the other place where I think people have an edge 
is looking at businesses where the headlines look really, really bad. Um, you know, journalism today is all about getting clicks. That's that's what makes money. Um, the you know, and there, there's the unfortunate part about that is that headlines can be very misleading. They often are, but the fortunate side of that is if you're an investor, the articles about temporary problems in businesses are way scarier than they used to be. So if there's a company that's so hated in the news, that's a place to look. Now, again, maybe the stock's down and it's not actually that cheap, but sometimes you might find that if you were to try to value that business, it's actually vastly different than what the stock price is. So I, I have found opportunities like, like that before as well. Cool. Um, the, and then, you know, and, and part of the reason that opportunity exists is there's very perverse incentives in the financial man investment management industry. So like if I was work if I was working for a large firm, um, and say I underperformed the market for like four or five years straight, which could happen. It has happened before. Um, I would get fired from my job. So right. if I owned, you know, if I owned like 500 stocks and I was down when everyone else was down up when everyone else was up, when I'm up, I'd say, look guys, we made money when I'm down. I'd say, well, everyone else is down and I have job security. So even if you're right, if you're wrong, if you look wrong for a few years and you work for a larger firm, you may get fired and then you right. don't make any money from that. So, um, you gotta be I've more seen, careful, right? Yeah. I, so I've yeah. seen situations where, you know, there was, there was a, an oil and gas security during COVID in 2020. That was really cheap. I, it was, it was didn't, didn't make sense the price. And I really thought I was missing something. Uh, I was like, this seems too obvious. Um, so I called up a friend of mine who, who, um, is a bond trader and, you know, was familiar with the bond. I said, am I missing something? Like he goes, no, I go, so why don't you own it? He goes, cause it would make the firm look bad. And uh -huh. that was everything I needed to know. So if you don't have clients who are super short-term oriented, or if you're an individual investor who doesn't have clients in the first place, you can take a much longer term approach to these kinds of securities and make a lot more money than than people who are kind of forced to be more short-term oriented um, about their investment decisions. Gotcha. What would you say? So if, if some guys like deciding whether to just put a bunch of money into like an ETF, like a Vanguard, for example, yeah, yeah, or yeah. hire, um, you know, a firm like yours to manage it, what would be the yeah. pros and cons? Why would someone choose um, one or the other? So I would, <clears throat> I would generally say not to go with someone like me. I mean, I know this is like horrible marketing, but generally you should, you should probably just do an index fund that's low cost and call it a day. Um, the problem with people in my industry is, you know, and, and it's, it's, I don't, I don't know how, if there's any resolution to this, as I said earlier, most of my investors are pretty sophisticated. If people who are not sophisticated investors I mean, you think I'm smart, but who the hell knows? Maybe, maybe I'm just talking out of my ass. So for me, right, I'm running, say I'm running my own firm, right? I'm by myself. Most sort of average Joes would just pick someone who works at like their local bank, who's an investor, who's a wealth manager, has an institution behind them. They don't know the difference anyway. So they at least assume, well, there's a big institution behind them. So it's safer. Yeah. And if they make money, even if it's not great, you know, they know they're probably not a crook. You know, they're, they're probably not going to steal their money from them. Um, so 
most people who want just general wealth management end up going with people like that. And you know, the analogy that I use is, you know, let's say I was gonna, I was gonna look to scout, you know, uh, NFL quarterbacks, right? So I'd be going to these colleges or high schools and looking at the football players. Now, I don't know anything. I mean, I, I know fantasy football. That's that's about the extent of it. But if I went to any high school or college and looked at the quarterback, I'd I'd look at everyone and be like, "Wow, they're amazing. They they're so good." Because <laughs> right? I, I have I have no mental models. I have no filters for what actually makes someone an NFL quarterback. So the only people that could really distinguish the good ones from the not so good ones would be people who are like professional scouts. It's interesting. It's kind of like dating so, coaches. A lot of guys, you know, there's a lot of dating coaches out there, like myself, of course. Right. And usually a guy who's trying to pick a dating coach is not qualified to make that choice of who's good and who's not. And, that that uh, sounds about right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I think coaches in general, right? I mean, look how many garbage coaches are out there. And I'd say for every like great coach who's doing really good stuff, there's a lot more that just, you know, slap the label coach on. For the average person, you don't necessarily know the difference. Right. Um, so it's a real dilemma. Um, you know, I would say there are qualities, you know, if you wanted an investment manager that you that you think could have some kind of edge, I think the qualities you'd want to look for, and I'm completely biased in what I'm about to say, but if I didn't fit this criteria, I would still say the same thing anyway. Um, you know, it's just funny. It reminds me of started years ago. There was a girl, she ended up being my girlfriend for a little bit, but before she was my girlfriend, when I had met her, she was dating this this guy. And um, I basically, she, you know, she was hanging out with me in my apartment one day. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very biased in saying this, but I think you should break up with your boyfriend. And I'm biased in saying this because I'm attracted to you and I like you. But even if I was totally not attracted to you at all, I would still tell you this right now. So, so, so same thing here. Um, <laughs> you you want to find... Work. It, I mean, I guess it did, yeah. But the <laughs> you also How long don't want to take for her to uh, break up with a few months. But she's like, "Wow, you're right." Hey, Joe, we're done. <laughs> it was it was it was a it was a few months. It okay. was a few months. Um, but I don't know what happened. Uh, but the um, but the um, and and also if if you're listening, don't use that as a tactic because then it'll become a tactic and and be weird. So, um, reminds me of your. Uh, do you remember your Minnie Mouse story? You yeah. Said? Yeah, or Mickey Mouse or whatever. Yeah, it reminds me of that. But um, or I, the, the I called her Minnie Mouse and she liked me because that's I right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I thought it was the Minnie Mouse, but actually she was just on the rebound and right place. That's right. right. So, I, 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 yeah. I still remember that story when I was in college. I had a radio show and you, you know, I interviewed you then for that. But um, <laughs> I digress. Um, so I would look for someone who is first on the younger side. Right. If you hire someone with a good track record who's 85, there's not much runway left. Um, that makes it hard because the people with the good track records tend to be much older and they also tend to have a lot of money. And that's the other thing is, you know, what someone could do with a billion dollars is not going to be the same as what someone could do with 20 million dollars. It's a different game and it's harder at a billion, a lot harder at a billion dollars than it is at say 10 20 million dollars that you're managing um so you want to look for someone who's more boutique who's on the smaller side who has a good track record also on the younger side um you want to look for someone where their fee structure uh tends to be aligned with um 
the investor because um, you don't essentially want your wealth manager to be getting rich off you. You want to be you want them to get rich with you. Um, and then someone who also, you know, and this is this is more of a qualitative thing, seems to be very ethical in business. You know, I'd say so this kind of stays away from being super promotional, not trying to be pitching stocks all the time, um, does their own work, does their own research. You know, if you have a whole investment committee, that's that's something to be worried about. Mm-hmm. Um generally invest in um in managers who are going to create more concentrated portfolios for you will be better than someone who's has a super diversified portfolio because at that point you should just go buy an index fund and get the same performance but without the fee um so there's a bunch of these nuances and then actually sit down with a person and really see how they think about things and if it's if they can explain things simply to you that shows there's there's some real thinking there any of these guys giving these like super corporate presentations and it's so over the top complicated, it's because it's it's too confuse you to make it seem like they have some secret sauce that you don't have. Right. You know, the Red the best flag. investors will will show you exactly what they do and, and you could replicate it if you if you wanted. Um so that 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 would be the the general advice I, I would give someone if you want to look for a money manager, but you'll have but that takes some work and in, in, in figuring that out. And what sort of bankroll do you need to be working with for that? Like, what's the, uh, the the point of your savings where you're like, okay, I should put XYZ into this? Or and do you have any like personal finance tips, basically? Uh, so, so for full disclosure, right, I I'm not a financial planner, so that, mm-hmm. that is not my expertise. Um, so this is just my personal opinion. Um, but I think the I think people should focus on making like that first, you know, a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars of savings. That's the hardest. Yeah. You know, if you have ten thousand dollars in savings, instead of, you know, spending all this time investing, like that's not where you're gonna make your money. You know, go look to start a business, you know, go go have a new side hustle, like go create something to get to that one to two hundred thousand dollars in cash that you don't need life becomes way easier if you can have that um because if you have ten thousand dollars even if you have a good track record so great you turn ten thousand into fifty thousand you know over over 10 years or something (laughs) you know if you if you turn 10k to 50k over 10 years that's a fantastic track record it's not it's not gonna really change your lifestyle though right but you know if you turn if you turn you know uh two hundred thousand dollars into a million dollars in that same time period that will that will change things. Mm-hmm. So, but if you have, um, say, like a hundred k or more, then I'd say you know you should you should be serious about um, investing that capital. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was expecting you to say. So. Yeah, yeah. I would say if if you have capital and do have some time on your hands, um, one way to kind of jumpstart that um, would be to buy a small business and run it for like four or five years. Um, you know, if you go onto these business brokerage websites or biz buy sell, which is the big one, there's some small businesses that there's nothing wrong with them. And they're selling at like two times earnings. So essentially if the company never grows again, that would be about a 50% annualized return on your money. It's really good. Yeah. So I I've known a few people that have done that where they bought, you know, one or two businesses that, you know, maybe take, you know, 10, 20 hours a week to run, they're essentially buying a job 
right. uh, they can sell the company at some point. Um, I have a buddy who had a friend who bought an ice cream. You know, the guy's like pretty well to do. He bought an ice cream shop and ran an ice cream shop for a few years. You know, but look, if you if you pay, say, let's say you, you let's say you have a you know a a six hundred thousand um, dollar you know business or something or five hundred thousand dollar business, you know, and you um, put down you know a hundred thousand dollars to run it, it's a pretty stable business. I mean, those returns are pretty damn good, and it doesn't take that much capital um, to to get in on running the business, and then you're and then all the money is pretty much going to your salary or to you know cash flows to you. Um, yeah, so that, that's the, that's another interesting thing to do. The other cool thing about that too, it's it's one of those things that people just don't think to do. So I think there's a big opportunity there. Like people aren't there is there's there's not there's not a lot of competition, especially with those businesses because. Um, and I've noticed this, right? The, you know, if you're looking, you know, if you, if any of your listeners go to bizbuysell.com, if you look at these, like, you know, a business for sale for like $10 million, $18 million, right? The valuations go up quite a bit. You know, those, those companies can go for 10 times, uh, cash flows. But look at a business that's like a $200,000 business, a $300,000 business. A $300,000 business might have $150,000 in cash flow. Right. That's, that's a you know. very nice paying job. For yeah. You. So I, I've, I've come close. I ended and up not I, doing it. I think people, but, people sell businesses all the time. And a lot of the time when they sell, they just need to get out and they're willing to sell it. That's right. That is, that is right. Fire sale real estate, for example, like shit happens in their life. They got to sell it. They're going to sell it for, you know, change on the dollar. So, yeah. Yeah. So, or, or they just don't want to, or they just don't want to do the, you know, the work anymore and they just want the cash. Right. So, you know, they're not going to get a great, you know, and that's the thing. If you bought a, if you bought an ice cream shop, you know, you might sell it, you know, say you want, you, you run it for five years, you sell it five years later, you might sell it for, you know, just a slight premium to what you paid for it, but you got all these cash flows out of the business. So it ends up being a good, pretty good return. Um, but that's, that's always an option too for people. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to to kind of think in those terms because yeah, it just doesn't occur to most people. They're like, I can't buy a business. I don't know anything. It's like, sure you can. <laughs> well, you know, you know what it is is that you know it doesn't matter if I'm talking about a private business, a public business, real estate. To me, all that matters is two things. Well, really, it's one thing. It's your it's your uh, rate of return. Now, and if you can make a good return taking very low risk, that's the sweet spot. Now, the reason some of these small businesses have higher returns <clears throat> is that you are putting time into it. And then how much is your time worth? Um, when you figure that out, they're often still good investments. Um, but, you know, there is a return on your time, too. So that's you are getting compensated for that. But public businesses, right? They already have a CEO. They already have a management in place. They have employees. You don't have to do anything. You know, and so you can run your own little holding company of of tiny slices of different businesses if you can buy them at a good price which is the key word a good price um you'll do very well for yourself over a few decades are there ways to buy those businesses without having all the capital up front can you finance those sorts of things i'm guessing well if they're if they're public you don't need all that capital up front i mean if they're but then again enough to control it right No, no 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 i'm saying if you just but if you, if you buy you know one share of Google today, oh, right? you, you, you want to okay, yeah yeah yeah. But the 
But what I was saying before is if you have such a small amount of money, like you could, but that's not what's going to really change your lifestyle. Even if you, even if you're doing 20% annualized, it's still going to be hard. Um, right. You know, so get to that first $100,000, in cash for, you know, however you can do that. And then, you know, really get serious about investing that capital. And that, and see, that's where it's stupid. It's almost stupid to try to keep hustling because, you know, if, I'm not saying it's stupid, but the math just works out where even if you have like average returns, right? If you had a two hundred thousand dollar portfolio and you're in your thirties, I mean you're gonna you're gonna be in a really I mean, in a position that's way better than most people in their seventies by the time you're in your seventies. I mean, that's just basic compound compound interest. And then if you can do an extra percent or two more, you're in a really good position. And people are blown away i mean this is such basic math but you know use the compound interest calculator and and figure out you know if you have 100k and adding a few thousand every year nine percent or twelve percent the numbers start to get ridiculous which is which is also mind-blowing when you see how many people are in their 70s and aren't worth over 10 million dollars like to me if you if you had 100k and you knew how to invest it would be really hard to not be worth 10 million dollars plus by the time you're in your 70s just by simply putting just by simply math here into that i don't i don't know the exact math so no don't quote me on that but right um i mean look if i here, i'm gonna i'm gonna look something up you can edit this part out but um right if i'm just, i'm going on moneychimp.com right so if i had say two hundred thousand in current principle right and i added say i was able to add twenty thousand a year and you know save so if i'm making a hundred thousand dollars a year i save twenty thousand of that i give it 50 years to grow and say I can compound that at twelve percent a year. That's one hundred eleven million dollars. What about twenty years? In twenty years, doing that same calculation in twelve, well, twelve percent that would be three and a half million. If you lower it to ten percent, that's two point six million. If you lower that to say eight percent, that's one point nine million. I mean, so again, the math gets gets you don't eight percent returns not that great, and you're still worth close to two million dollars in twenty years from that. Right. And that's pretty easy. Say if you're like, if you're 40, you're trying to retire at 60, you save 20 grand a year. You got right. over, what did you say? 2 million bucks? Uh, I said, if you, yeah. Well, so if you had a, if you had starting principle of 200K, uh-huh. $20,000 a year added, 20 years to grow, 8%, that's 1.9 million. Yeah. You know, and if you could do 10% a year, which has historically been the average, that's 2.5 million, 2.6 million. Right. You know, and then if you give it 30 years to grow versus 20 years to grow, because ideally you're not going to be spending all of that at the same time, that's now $7 million. Not bad. Not Pays bad. If you add, <laughs> yeah, and if you add, say, if you add a 30000 a year, now you're at uh, about $9 million. So these, these numbers get pretty big. Yeah. Or, you know, if, say, instead of 200000 principal, you had 300000 to start, you know, now you're at $10.6 million. Just after thirty years, you can live on. You can retire on that. I think. I think you'd be okay. Yeah. yeah. So, where can uh, well, first, where are there any other like mindset pieces or any counterintuitive things about investing um, that you think would benefit the listener? Sure, a um, few things. One would be that. Um, people tend to overpay for certainty and underpay for uncertainty. And 
you know, if you look at the way just our minds work, right? If something is uncertain, right? And we don't, you know, we're, we're wired to see patterns. We're wired for predictability. So when something feels uncertain and unpredictable, it creates a level of anxiety for people. Um, so an example of that is, you know, if you have a, a U.S. government 10-year bond, right? Yielding 3% or 4% or whatever. You are certain to make, no, you're, you are certain to make that that yield. It's certain. That's a horrible return, but people do that every day. However, if you were buying, say, a a very speculative biotech company, that would be very uncertain. So if it, if it creates some cancer drug, you know, you could make 100 times your money, right? So you're getting paid if there's uncertainty. Now, in the example I gave you, the biotech company would be very high risk because it's it's it, the the downside is zero. However, if I said, here's a biotech company with a, a drug that possibly could get approved in the future from the FDA, and they have $20 million of cash on the balance sheet, no debt, and the market cap is $15 million, so you're paying less than cash for the business, it's still uncertain, but now it's not risky anymore. So the sweet spot is if you can find situations that are uncertain, but also low risk, right? So even though there's all these out range of probabilities, even in a really bad case scenario, you're not going to lose a lot of money, which goes back to rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. <laughs> That's a really good way to make money because it allows you to stay in the game. And on occasion, you'll hit a, you'll hit a home run by accident. Mm-hmm. But you want to be around and hit those home runs. Or you know, if you invest in a speculative security, you go to zero. Well, you're out of the game. So part of the part of the game is being able to just stay in the game. And if you do this again, if you're doing this for 30, 40, 50 years, you can't get wiped out. You have yeah. to be vigilant against wiping out. But that does not mean you have to take low returns. So if you can get a low risk, high return, which is kind of what everyone ideally wants, you need to be willing to deal with uncertainty. I mean, it's it's almost guaranteed because the, the the things that feel good psychologically and that give you certainty will almost inevitably be things that you overpay for and give you a bad return. You need to have that risk tolerance. Well, no, you have to have the 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 emotional tolerance. It's not okay. risky. Okay. You know, I would say it's certain that Austin population grows in the next 10 years. I do think that's risky to buy Austin real estate. It may work out. You know, you may look at this podcast 10 years later and it works out, but it may not work out. You know, if you buy something at a 2% cap rate and there's 5% price appreciation, that's a 7% return. That's a lot of risk for a 7% return. Yeah. I could find things in the stock market with almost no, not no risk, but almost no risk for a 7% return which right. I'd feel much more comfortable with. Um, you know, you can buy real estate with eight cap rates, you know, so who cares if it doesn't appreciate in price? If let's say it appreciates with inflation, let's say long-term inflation is 3%, you know, that's now that's an 11% return with very little risk. You know, so, so there's the, you could say that risk has nothing to do with an uncertainty or certainty. What risk has to do with, is what's my possibility of a permanent loss of capital? You know, buying buying a a thirty year treasury today, 
Um, and if we were talking, say, a year ago, buying a 30-year treasury where interest rates were very, very low um, was very, very certain. But I would say that was very, very risky because you had an inflationary risk. You're, yeah. you're locking in terrible returns and you're certain to lock in those returns. Right. Um, so that's that's one principle um, is the the low risk, high uncertainty way of thinking about things. And there's a book that elaborates that uh, my colleague Monish Pabrai wrote a book called The Dondo Investor. Um, where he talks about that mindset in in more detail, um, then I mean that that's that's one principle I can I can, I can think of. Um, the other thing is not to get so hung up on, you know, the kind of asset you're owning. You know, just because something is real estate doesn't make it a good investment, um, and just because something is oil and gas doesn't not make it risky. Um, so there's, you know, the the. I think a lot of these these mythologies are around because people always know someone who invested in some you know speculative oil and gas company. Most people who buy real estate, especially if it's good quality real estate, I mean, you're going to make money. I mean, the problem is if you actually looked over like a see a thirty year return of some of these homes, it's like, oh my god, my 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 house is tripled. It's like, okay, that's a five percent return. <laughs> like, you know, it's not it's not actually that good. Right. Um, but the the benefit of real estate for a lot of people is that it forces them to hold because they're not you know you can't go in and out of real estate every week. Right. Um. So if you're holding something for a long time, you can see it. You know the the thing with the stock market is you can't necessarily see it. Right. You have to visit the company, and you know casinos. Right. They make their money off not being able to see the dollars. Right. You have chips. It's very easy to 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 do stuff that you wouldn't do if those were dollar bills. Right. So with stocks, it's like you can buy a stock with no research. You can sell it 10 seconds later. If you were buying a farm, you would never buy a farm because you liked soybeans and then sell it a week later because something happened in Greece that was unrelated. But people do that in the stock market all the time. It's 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 like a form of psychosis. Right. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to to make that mental link between the chips or the fake money. Yeah. to like the hard it, asset. It's it's a you know, and so a stock is a hard asset. I mean, if you buy Google, right? You're buying you know the you're buying the employees, you're buying the intellectual property, you're buying all the AI systems. I mean, that's that's a real thing. If you're if you bought Coca-Cola, you're buying you're buying a slice of the machinery of the warehouses of the network of the territory partner. Like you're buying all that stuff. But people just see a little ticker symbol moving around. Yeah. That represents that, Maybe but that's a legal. Be a stupid, ridiculous exercise, but build a little model of the thing you buy. You know, put it on your desk, and uh, like, fuck, if I just this is my thing, <laughs> I think it would just help. Well, me that's why way. I tell people. You know, that's why I say go read a corporate report because yeah. you know if you own if you own one share of Coca Cola, you are a partner in the business of Coca- you you own you own a part of Coca Cola, and that's your company. Should tell girls I own Coca Cola. You could you could tell girls you own Coca Cola. I'm an exec at Coca Cola. <laughs> well, cool man. I've learned a lot. I really appreciate all the insights and the help. Where where can guys find you if they're interested in learning more? Yeah, so so I, I have a website. There there's not much on the site. There's like a few case studies. Um, I haven't updated in a while. Um, but you can go on the website. It's uh, gscm.co. Um. But if you really want to get a hold of me, um, I'm very active on Twitter. It's just my name, Eric Schlein. I'm very active on Instagram, also Eric Schlein. So you can, you know, DM me, send me a, a Twitter message. 
Um, I, you know, I do check all my messages and I, I do respond to all questions and I, I, and I love to teach. So even if it's just a question, um, I'm always happy to answer anything. The only thing that is off limits is I don't give specific investment advice. So do not reach out to me saying, which stock should I buy or anything like that? I, I, I don't engage in those conversations, but anything else, I'm always happy to help. Thanks for listening. If you want more, go to innerconfidence.com and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for the latest episodes.